This is Artists at Work, stories from people who make the arts their business. I'm Thomas Breeden. A quick note before we start the show. This episode contains some open discussion of trauma, including sexual assault and rape. If you are sensitive to any of that material, then this episode may not be for you. With that said, let's begin. I was saved for a reason, and I'm not going to take any day I'm given on the planet um, for granted. So uh, it's very important that I use whatever voice I have left to help people who um, have either suffered trauma or feel like they are just not being treated fairly or being marginalized intentionally. And unfortunately, we do that too often. Julia Torres Barden is a photographer, journalist, and the writer of the blog and memoir New Yorican Girl. A survivor of traumatic events, she has spent her life learning to embody a spirit of resilience and how best to advocate for others who have had similar experiences. After a successful career as a spokesperson for a large corporation and as a journalist, Barden had a moment of clarity when her three sons had left the house and she paused to reevaluate her life, its purpose, and coming to terms with her trauma. Particularly in my culture and because of my life experience, being a mom, I tell people saved my life. It gave me structure. It was my number one goal to be the best parent, uh, both for myself in terms of intent and for my children in the way they were taught to problem solve or to be empathetic humans. Uh, It was my greatest legacy. And what now when you are supposed to, particularly with your sons, just say bye-bye, it's been great, go make a life. Uh, So uh, I think that empty nest life felt very daunting and in sort of exploring inward, uh, I realized that it was a good time for me to very directly confront my trauma in my way of still needing to nurture. What group could I continue nurturing? And I think that it was fellow victims of childhood trauma like me, or women uh, who've been sexually assaulted like me, and that I wanted to be, I don't wanna be cliche here, but very Mother Teresa towards them in saying, you know, I'm in my 50s now, I'm in a safe place, I'm in a secure marriage, I know where my next paycheck is coming from. How can I then be, the front person to take the brunt of the community reaction, typically negative, so that while they are recovering from their own wounds, I'm able to speak in a way that helps them be understood better, but perhaps they're not ready to tell the world yet. And so it sort of became, for me at this time, I would now tell you, I'm a trained advocate uh, with a pretty nice resume of corporate success, of um, journalism and having won a couple of awards, which shocked me. I had no idea I could do that. Um, and writing my book. But as, I, as I've mentioned, that book was a cathartic exercise um, because I needed to see my truth in print to validate myself, if you will. 
in ways that other people had not. So I would tell the world right now, it's almost like I'd consider myself a gadfly as well. Um, I just want to be the fly in the ointment for people who feel disenfranchised, who feel neglected, um, or feel like their emotional experience uh, is not being either validated or taken as truth. Her drive to validate and stand up for herself and for others stems from her own experiences as a child, beginning at nine years old. I had always said I was abducted and raped, okay? True story, sunny afternoon, right after school. Um, I have been allowed to walk my friend home. Um, she lives two blocks from where I live. And I am coming, I'm just about to turn the corner to my doorman building. And this very tall person, um, a man, um, is towering over me and he says, um, you have to come with me. I'm a police officer and I need your help finding an old lady's dog. So, uh, one, I've never been taught to, that it's okay to question authority. So this person, even though I don't know him, and my internal you know, bells are clanging saying, run, you're in danger. Um, I, I can't get over the way I've been raised that says an elder is telling you you must do something, one. Two, he has identified himself as a, in a position of authority. Um, and three, there's a dog involved. Well, that sounds fun. And four, of course I'm supposed to help the old lady. So he has completely convinced me that the right thing to do on all fronts is to go with him. Um, and so I think that from that, um, the most important thing I came away with was understanding that even at nine years old, my intuition told me what I should have done to keep myself safe. And I didn't do it. And there were many times even after that when my intuition told me, this is not so great. But in, increasingly, if it wasn't a good situation for me to be in, as I got older, I could extract myself from it. Uh, and so I think it's important to learn how to empower children and, frankly, humanity, to understand that that intuition is there for a reason. And it's not always to follow it only when there's something bad or ominous coming. It could be, oh, do I leave a secure job, you know, to take the job of my dreams that's offering a major pay cut, but I'll be happier. And everyone's saying, but you won't have benefits. And you're saying, but I'll be happy. So it's about learning to honor your intuition, in my opinion. Um, and then there is the damage I felt to my self-concept when my father gives me, relinquishes his parental rights after a two-year legal battle so that I can be adopted by my stepfather. And my mother is the one behind all of this. And so I at the time, she's trying to convince me that this is because my life will be better. And as I'm having my children and I'm saying, wait a minute, to change their last name overnight is, is horrible. 
no matter what the circumstances, because it's sort of like erasing who they built themselves or define themselves to be. Um, and so, you know, you immediately blame the two people that you live with, the stepfather and the mother. But increasingly, particularly as I'm in my 20s and deciding who am I going to marry, I'm realizing that my father abandoning me also defines me. Uh, and how am I going to deal with that? So I feel like there are, the first thing was uh, a crime. The second is an emotional crime. Um, there are all different scenarios in my childhood trauma that cross over um, into different sectors of life. For example, um, I realized, okay, I went to school the next day after I had walked through a cement maze, figured out how to get home on my own, and asked to take a bath at five o'clock. And who, what kid asks to take a bath at five o'clock, right? So I'm thinking, oh, there was a clue that I gave the adults around me, um, but how could I concentrate in school the next day? How could I focus? And so why didn't the teachers notice? And so I decide, well, if no one's noticing, then I guess I'm not worth it. It's something, it's about me. This happened because I'm not good enough or because I shouldn't have gone with him or um, the people I thought cared, they don't, so I'm dumb. So uh, you internalize a lot of that and learning how to turn the negative into a positive, if you will, the idea of resilience, of changing that internal message is something that unfortunately can't be taught, but I am so lucky that eventually I possess it. Eventually I start to define my life in how, um, you know, those things happened as a lesson, but they're not a life sentence. She began to redefine her life with the help of a therapist by discovering the meaning and value of resilience. I didn't understand or use the word resilience until my mental health breakdown in 2004, when I am sitting with a therapist, um, you know, after my three doctors have gotten me to a point where I'm stable enough to sit with her. And um, she's trying to explain to me that, Julia, you are a person who makes lemonade out of lemons. And that is how I'm going to define resilience for you. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. So a lemonade all by itself, I guess, can be bitter, can be something you wouldn't think could console you. But if you're able to gather the lemonades, uh, the lemons and add uh, another ingredient or serve it in a different way to be creative um, as an outlet, then you're creating something magical and beautiful that's thirst quenching and makes you feel happy and is rehydrating and makes you feel like um, you've made something special out of nothing. Uh, so 
I didn't understand that the concept of resilience was such an important word within the mental health world. Uh, you know, people will say, oh, you bounce back quickly, uh, or um, you are an optimistic person. Those kinds of traits actually can save a life. And I didn't understand that. And so as I went through more and more therapy, I started to spend time thinking about times when my resilience kicked in. You have to move beyond when you talked yourself out of your intuition, but instead your resilience said, no, I'm not going to do that. I No, I'm not going to try um, to smoke because... Um, there are sick people in my family and I don't want to get those same diseases. So even if it means losing friends in high school, uh, I'm going to have to be strong and rely on myself. So I think that resilience, self-reliance, um, it's, you know, like the person that you might consider stubborn, frankly, might be that way because it was one of their problem solving techniques that kept them moving in the direction they wanted to go in. Or, um, Joel, you, you know, take a sip of champagne here at your wedding. You know, it's tradition. Everybody does it. Well, I've decided I'm never going to drink because too many alcoholics are in my family and I don't really want to take that risk. So it's learning to be comfortable in your own skin when no one may be supporting you. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I did it that I was able to be resilient more often. Um, but I'm grateful for whatever ways in which I've been able to bounce back and I have been able to take the negative scenario and look at the positives from it. Uh, frankly, it made me a good spokesperson. It's almost like a spin, you know, a, a media term that we use, obviously. What's the spin today and how are we going to manipulate you? Well, I think people do that even in their own minds where you can stay in a dour, terrified, I'm in a dungeon life, or you can say, well, today, look at the beautiful blue sky. Um look at those spring buds, those flowers, they weren't there yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to watch a suspenseful television show tonight because it scares me. You make choices every single day about what to expose yourself to. And for me, my resilience, I can't handle Game of Thrones. I have to tell your audience, I have never in my life seen Game of Thrones. Um, it means that I have to give up being hip and cool, but when you've been a victim of a crime that took you to a basement, um, you have, you have experienced a level of, uh, bondage that you can't imagine people pay and go to the movies to see those things. Yeah. Um, why would I want to be frightened on purpose? Um, I can, you know, tell you things that happen that frightens me right there in real life. So um, resilience is about also being self-confident enough eventually. And it's a long process. And I would not tell you I was resilient until like last week. Even though the word resilience is new to the way she talks about her life, Barden felt its impact even as a child 
through her early artistic experiences. I remember, for me, it was color forms. When I'm three, four, five years old, and literally, color forms, do you know what they are even? They're vinyl pieces that you were able to stick on cute little pictures in the cardboard box, you know, and maybe put, um, oh, Mr. Captain Kangaroo over here on the left by the sunny window, or tomorrow he could be over here by the horsey. Uh, and how you would take the piece of, off of the plastic cardboard and then have to put it back on its little black sheet that had indented grooves. And for me, the tactile sort of concentration it took to make sure those pieces were exactly like no one had ever touched this before. It was so perfectly put back. Um, truly for me, brought my blood pressure down as a five-year-old. And I started to notice, wait a minute, Okay, let me try the Play-Doh Fun Factory. <gasps> Wait a minute, you, if I put this clump of the neon orange in here and I put it in the, in the Play-Doh Factory, I have, I'm in charge of the five, is it a star today? Is it three noodles? Is it a square? Um, I'm in charge. I didn't understand that, um, you know, molding with clay and using your hands to reduce stress is literally a way in which to do therapy. Um, and so exposure to those things, whether it was taking me out of uh, my mind intellectually or physically focusing on a different manipulative, um, finger painting was awesome totally awesome. I still finger paint with my kids. Um, you know, there's an annual beach trip and they know some kind of canvas is coming along and mommy's going to have paints and everybody's going to put their fingerprints. We're going to make a turkey this year, um, at a fingerprints. So, uh, these were inexpensive toys or, um, educational opportunities for me to enjoy because I'm raised in poverty. Um, the other most amazing thing that happened was Spirograph. Wow, not that I could ever figure out how to really get the circles to go um, all over the place, but the idea that I could choose the pen color, I could choose the size of the circle, um, made me feel like there was something available within my control to take my mind off of the crisis that I was in. And then being accepted into a noted art high school uh, first gave me an, a sense that, oh, maybe I am worth something. Wait a minute. Oh, thank you. They've given me a compliment today because, you know, during the exam to get into the school, I remember there were three or four um, questions. And one of them was, okay, in the next 15 minutes, draw 50 people on the New York City subway. What? Um, I was never brilliant at um, sketching that quickly, but I did it, and somehow they thought it was good. Uh, so sending me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to do homework. What a place to lose yourself, right? Um, being told you must go to the Guggenheim. You must go to MoMA. What?
wow. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I have to go do my homework. But you're in an art museum and you're not even realizing that on your way to the medieval wing, you're watch, you're looking at a Rembrandt or, oh my gosh, there's a Renoir. What is that? Because Impressionism is my favorite. Uh, so these are ways in which the universe was helping me uh, use my inherent resilience to truly blossom. Barden soon developed an obsession with photography and the power it has to help her understand the world. There are several reasons why photography matters to me. It can move you emotionally. It can help you better understand. And that's from a photojournalism perspective. I mean, that, that iconic picture of the Vietnamese guy with the gun next to his head, that's all I needed to see to understand the Vietnam War how powerful, Um, but historically as well, I'm pretty sure as explained to me that because my trauma level from childhood is so high, I have issues with memory. Uh, And I think that in many ways I became a historian so that I would remember things that mattered. And I needed visual cues to do that. And so for me to be able to document my life, where I was at, what the flower in Central Park looked like in 1970, then it takes you back to, oh, that's right, and we were at the band shell, and you know, we were, we were eating ices, and uh, I don't know, everybody was on rollerblades. It's little cues for me that come through images. Uh, watching your children grow, a loved one who doesn't visit often, and those pictures that allow you to stay connected to them in my opinion, uh, is an art form that truly saved my life. Whether it was to be creative with it or whether it was to soothe me, uh, there is nothing like a book of photographs to me, whether it's my own scrapbook or a book on Renoir, um, or excuse me, uh, Matthew Brady or Ansel Adams. uh, Because I'm looking at you know, Ansel Adams, oh, it's a picture of one leaf. whoop de doo Ah, okay, well, you're a city kid, so for you, you know, nature is pigeons, squirrels, and rats. But, you know, now you're looking at this one leaf, and you're like, wow, that's a lot bigger than the ones they have in Central Park. Or what, what are those mountains? Are those real? You know, because I've only seen a hill, you know? Um, so it... The way that photographs can educate and transcend uh, locations, stations in life, um, is, is a miraculous thing to me. And so I have to document everything. Barden's journey of self-discovery and confronting her trauma was largely a quiet one. She used her early toys and her photography as forms of art therapy. She worked with a counselor, and she tried to better understand the science of her PTSD and anxiety to help explain her mental health to her kids. She first made the story of her sexual assault public when she published her memoir, New Yorican Girl, in 2013. But even as an accomplished communications professional, she had yet to speak this part of her story to the world. That changed when she gave a talk at TEDx Grace Street Women in December 2018. It's funny you ask me right after I've done that TED talk, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, um, 
okay, sure. Uh, I wrote the book in 2013. It's It's been five and a half years. Um, I, sh- I should be able to do this. Oh, you know, I'm public speaker. I've introduced governors before from big stages. Well, I, I'm not afraid to be a public speaker. No problem. But as we would go through each iteration, because we do a lot of practicing in advance of those TED Talks, I started to feel like talk about triggers every other Sunday. And then he raped me. And, you know, I don't mean to be cavalier on air here, but it was like, wow, this is a little too much for me going over and over and over again. And then you have people on the production team like, um, you're a rocker. And I thought, what does that mean? What do you mean I'm a rocker? Uh, Like, I'm awesome? No, you're rocking as you're speaking, meaning I was shifting my weight. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Do you understand what I'm telling you here? And it's about how I'm holding my position? So, of course, they were in the right. So to have myself critiqued while I'm telling you these really in-depth details about things, because... While we practice, I shared even more about the specific experience and realized I was not comfortable going there. And the team thought, oh, maybe we need to give trigger warnings. So we had that whole conversation. If you remember, our MC actually came out and said, now we're going to do some talks that might be a problem for some people in the audience. Um, So it was... Every other week, I would call my husband. I don't know if I can do this. I mean, I don't have to do it, right? I mean, it's not like a job. I, I you don't have to do it. And he knows now that he can say, no, honey, you don't have to do it. Because he knows I'm going to do it. But he's just been given a script, right? So he knows leading up to every event that I do at the five-day mark, she's going to start to get twitchy. You know, two days before, she's really going to start feeling like, nope, can't go, sorry, not sure. Morning of, incredibly quiet. Don't touch her, don't look at her, just open the door, anticipate her motion, and let her do her thing. And then afterwards, there is a level of exhaustion, like I have just run the New York City Marathon. So I thought, oh, I wrote, I wrote this all down in a book. How can it be so hard to now talk about it again? But particularly in Richmond, where I am known as that former spokesperson, the really tough person who testified at the General Assembly about the smoking ban, boy, that Julia, she can scare you, you know. She's very effective. And now I'm here to tell you, oh, excuse me, my name is Julia, and when I was nine, something really bad happened, and if you could please just be sympathetic and quiet and kind, I'd really appreciate it. I knew that I was going to change the way in which people saw me, and I had to get prepared for that too. So between the literal machinations of preparing for the speech and the emotional component, I was a wreck. I was a mess. Uh, And that's where the idea 
that to get back to resilience, you're making lemonade out of lemons. So I gave you 14 minutes. Half of it was the lemons and half of it was the lemonade. Um, I had to tell you what the lemons were so that you would enjoy the lemonade. Um, but it was very, very difficult. So I do not have my act completely together, but I know that opening myself up and expressing my vulnerabilities so that I can help other people at a younger age like you um, or people in my um, Hispanic community who are still raising their children not to question elders, that's got to stop. Um, you've got to make a child feel like they're empowered to save themselves rather than go off with that adult who might violate them. So we, I want to stay focused on the price I paid and not being angry or cynical or devastated by it. You know, that will always be there. But predominantly, it's about how do I turn that horrific event into a way in which to engage my current community um, and the current generation, the young children, to feel like someone's listening, that somebody understands. For example, in Puerto Rico right now, um, you have all these children who were trapped for Hurricane Maria. And then you have the President of the United States, who's supposed to be Santa Claus, who came to the island and threw paper towels at us as though we don't matter. And you hear about how he won't give us the money that we're supposed to have because we're a territory. We're not really part of the United States. But you have these children who lived without electricity for a year. The trauma levels that they're experiencing as people are fleeing the island, including doctors, is terrifying. It's called the post-Hurricane Maria generation because there's no way they don't have PTSD. Uh, so every time the lights go out, do they, do they flinch? Because I'll tell you what, if I hear a noise, you, I, I will flinch. And people just have come to understand in my family, oh, sorry, mom, you know, um, I'm very, very cognizant of, of, my of, of my environment. And if something changes even in the slightest, I'm just going to take notice of it. So um, in the end of the day, I'm willing to take the shrapnel so that the wound I sustained was worth it. I have to save the other people on the battlefield. The war's not over, if that makes sense. I really believe that those of us with PTSD feel that way. And if you have resilience, then it's how do you save those members on the battlefield? How do you, you know, provide therapy and resources for them, hope? Um, a sense of accomplishment, uh, a sense of healing. That's what I want to talk about. Thanks for listening to Artists at Work, a podcast from Artstitution. This episode was written and produced by me, Thomas Breeden, with special thanks to my guest, Julia Torres-Barden. You can find her amazing TEDx talk and her blog at newyorkangirl.com. That's new, Yorican, Y-O-R-I-C-A-N, girl.com. You can find us on social media at Artstitution. Reach out and let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you. We're dedicated to building the arts through storytelling. 
Learn more at artstitution.org.